Welcome to the Republican Professor. If you're feeling discouraged, sad, if you're feeling that you're not sure if there's hope for the future, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling disoriented, we're glad you're here with us because that's the focus of this podcast is to provide a resource of community and training to make the world a better place, a little better than we found it. That's the very small goal that we have, but we do feel that it's it, it's worth doing and that it's possible. Today we have with us a very special guest, a Democrat, one of the very few Democrats that we've had on the podcast. Uh, Democrats um, now and then are a wonderful compliment, depending, of course, on who they are and what they're all about. But today's uh, special guest that we get to hear from is uh, one of my favorite Democrats, and it's uh, Mr. Rufus Peckham, former Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. We are so honored to have you here today, Mr. Justice Peckham. Thanks for being here. Mr. Justice Peckham joins us through his judicial writing. His opinion for the court, that's the United States Supreme Court, in Lochner versus New York, decided April 17th, 1905. Mr. Justice Peckham delivered the opinion of the court. I'm on page 52 in the U.S. reports. Volume 198 starts on page 45, 1905. Mr. Justice Peckham. The indictment, it will be seen, charges that the plaintiff in error violated a certain statute in New York. <laughs> Not going to read the statutes. And that he wrongfully and unlawfully required and permitted an employee working for him to work more than 60 hours in one week. There's nothing in any of the opinions delivered in this case, either in the Supreme Court or in the Court of Appeals of the state, which construes the section and using the word quote unquote required as referring to any physical force being used to obtain the labor of an employee. It is assumed that the word means nothing more than the requirement arising from voluntary contract for such labor in excess of the number of hours specified in the statute. There is no pretense in any of the opinions that the statute was intended to meet a case of involuntary labor in any form. All the opinions assume that there is no real distinction so far as this question is concerned. 
between the words required and permitted. The mandate of the statute that, quote, no employee shall be required or permitted to work is the substantial equivalent of an enactment that, quote, no employee shall contract or agree to work, unquote, more than 10 hours per day. And as there is no provision for special emergencies, the statute is mandatory in all cases. It is not an act merely fixing the number of hours which shall constitute a legal day's work, but an absolute prohibition upon the employer permitting under any circumstances more than 10 hours work be done in his establishment. The employee may desire to earn the extra money which would arise from his working more than the prescribed time on page 53 now, U.S. reports. But this statute forbids the employer from permitting the employee to earn it. The statute necessarily interferes with the right of contract between the employer and employees concerning the number of hours in which the latter may labor in the bakery of the employer. The general right to make a contract in relation to his business is part of the liberty of the individual protected by the 14th Amendment of the federal constitution. Under that provision, no state can deprive any person of life liberty or property without due process of law. The right to purchase or sell labor is part of the liberty protected by this amendment, unless there are circumstances which exclude the right. There are, however, certain powers existing in the sovereignty of each state in the union, somewhat vaguely termed police powers, the exact description and limitation of which have not been attempted by the courts. Those powers broadly stated and without at present any attempt at a more specific limitation relate to the safety, health, morals, and general welfare of the public. Both property and liberty are held on such reasonable conditions as may be imposed by the governing power of the state in exercise of those powers. And with such conditions, the 14th Amendment was not designed to interfere. The state, however, uh, therefore, has power to prevent the individual from making certain kinds of contracts and in regard to them, the federal constitution offers no protection. If the contract be one which the state and the legitimate exercise of its police power has the right to prohibit, it is not prevented from prohibiting it by the 14th Amendment. Contracts in violation of a statute 
either of the federal or state government or a contract to let one's property for immoral purposes to do any other unlawful act could obtain no protection from the federal constitution as coming under the liberty of person or of free contract. I'm on page 54 of the U.S. report. Therefore, when the state by its legislature in the assumed exercise of its police powers has passed an act which seriously limits the right to labor or the right of contract in regard to their means of livelihood between persons who are sui juris, both employer and employee, it becomes of great importance to determine which shall prevail the right of the individual to labor for such time as he may choose or the right of the state to prevent the individual from laboring or from entering into any contract to labor beyond a certain time prescribed by the state. How are we doing, guys? This is me. You hanging in there? Thank you for being with us, Rufus. And thank you so much for the time that you took to write this. We really appreciate it. If you can't tell, this is public health versus individual liberty. Perhaps you've heard of that topic. Perhaps. And it's not like Han Solo encased forever in some kind of frozen state and back then not relevant. And I know Han eventually got out of that. Okay. I'm not a total idiot. Um, I mean, I have a master's degree. My first name's Luke, you know, Dr. Phil, take the hint. But this is a timeless issue. It's timeless. How many of you have been exposed to Rufus Peckham on, on this topic. I don't think you, you can admit. And by the way, here we are on the Republican professor podcast and we have a Democrat. I'm saying he's doing a great job. So pay attention, pay attention to this. It's important. By the way, we're glad you're here. Thank you for being here. I enjoy having you here. We're going to continue. This court has recognized the existence and upheld the exercise of the police powers of the states. In many cases, which might fairly be considered as border ones, and it has in the course of its determination of questions regarding the asserted invalidity of such statutes, on the ground of their violation of the rights secured by the federal constitution, been guided by rules of a very liberal nature. Interesting word, liberal. Hmm. The application of which has resulted in numerous instances in upholding the validity of the state statutes thus assailed. 
among the latter cases where the state has been upheld by this court is that of Holden versus Hardy. A provision in the state, hold on, I'm going to pause right here. Got to take a sip of tea. I'm back. Holden versus Hardy, which is uh, in the 169th volume of the U.S. reports on page 366, starting at 366, 1898 from Utah. A provision in the act of the legislature of Utah was there under consideration in the act limiting the employment of workmen in all underground mines or workings to eight hours per day, except in cases of an emergency where life or property is in imminent danger. Life or property. It also limited the hours of labor in smelting and other institutions for the reduction or refining of ores or metals to eight hours per day, except in light cases of emergency. Notice the exceptions for emergencies. The act was held to be a valid exercise of the police powers of the state. A review of many of the cases on the subject decided by this court, this and other courts, is given in the opinion. It was held that the kind of employment, mining, smelting, etc., and the character of the employees in such kinds of labor were such as to make it reasonable and proper for the state to interfere to prevent the employees from being constrained by rules laid down by the proprietors, proprietors in regard to labor. The following citation, page 55 now, from the observation of the Supreme Court of Utah in that case, was made by the judge writing the opinion of this court and approved, quote, the law in question is confined to the protection of that class of people engaged in labor in underground mines and in smelters and other works wherein ores are reduced and refined. This law applies only to the classes subject by their employment to the peculiar conditions and effects attending underground mining and work in smelters and other works for the reduction and refining of ores. Therefore, it's not necessary to discuss or decide whether the legislature can fix the hours of labor in other employments, unquote. It, this is Rufus again, Rufus Peckham, Lochner versus New York, page 55. It will be observed that even with regard to the, that class of labor, the Utah statute provided for cases of emergency wherein the provisions of the statute would not apply. The statute now before this court has no emergency clause in it. And if the statute is valid, there are no circumstances and no emergencies under which the slightest violation of the provision of the act would be innocent. I'm going to stop right there. I love 
Mr. Justice Peckham's use of the term innocent because he nails it right on the head. This is about the criminalization of innocent conduct. That's always what is at stake in the abuse of the police power of the state. Remember the last several episodes I've been saying, you have to have a theory of the police power. I really need to reach out to Randy Parnett because he was the one that he was one of the ones that got me thinking about because the way he said it one time, um, he just, you know, it, it was one of those bracing moments in your career where somebody just says something in a crystal clear way that makes you think about it for the first time, even though you've been thinking about it for a long time, but in a new way, you think about it the first time in a new way. And he said, you got to have a theory of the police power. And I realized at that moment, I wasn't sure if I had a theory of the police power. Um, and, uh, most people don't. So we're working on that right now. We're working on a theory of the police power. Rufus is uh, letting us peer into his thinking on this and I'm liking it so far. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I hope you are keep going. Let's keep going. It's the primary source you're dealing with. It's a very, very important case. Very important. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Here's Rufus Peckham again, Mr. Justice Peckham. Lochner versus New York, page 55. The statute now before this court has no emergency clause in it. In other words, the New York bakery one limiting work to 60 hours a week. And if the statute is valid, there are no circumstances and no emergencies under which the slightest violation of the provision of the act would be innocent. In other words, what he's saying is, it's always been perfectly innocent conduct to work 11 hours in a day. What's the problem? It's always been perfectly lawful conduct, perfectly innocent conduct to work uh, more uh, 61 hours in a week. I mean, if you go back to this special revelation in the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, there is a, uh, a major regulation there that limits the work week to six days and mandates taking the seventh day off. That's true. That's true. Um, so let's continue. Okay. Here's Mr. Justice Peckham again. There's nothing in Holden versus Hardy. That's the mine regulation, eight hours a day for mines and smelt work in Utah. 
they upheld that. There's nothing in Holden versus Hardy that covers the case now before us, nor does Atkins versus Kansas touch the case at bar. The Atkins case was decided upon the right of the state to control its municipal corporations and to prescribe the conditions upon which it will permit the work of a public character to be done for a municipality. Knoxville Iron uh, Corporation versus Harbinson is equally far from an authority for this legislation. The employees in that case were held to be a disadvantage with the employer in matter of wages. <clears throat> I mean, this is this is the this is me. The reasoning behind these criminalization labor regulations, okay, in terms of hours, is uh, you know, claim to be from a good heart. We're trying to protect the workers from the big bad employees. But what it's effectively doing, as uh, Peckham mentioned on page 52, was the language of the statute said that the employee will not be able to require or permit. And now that's very interesting. Why would you put, put it that way? If you're trying to protect the workers... Why would you not permit them to work longer if they need extra money? How, is, isn't that protecting the worker, allowing them to, to go to work without being a criminal? <laughs> these do-gooders. It's these do-gooders. It's what Thomas Sowell calls the do-gooders. <laughs> All right. Let's go back to Justice Peckham. So Knoxville Iron versus Harbison is equally far from an authority on this legislation. The employees in that case were held to be a disadvantage with the employer in matter of wages, they being miners and coal workers. And the act simply provided for this uh, cashing of coal orders when presented by the miner to the employer. Peckham is interacting with the precedent. And you'll notice that um, a lot of the work that you're doing when you're trying to learn this stuff and trying to come up with your own view about it is being maybe a little bit familiar with um, these other cases he's citing. Nowadays, of course, you can't click on it when you print it out like I have. But I mean, I just have a Skillcraft uh, U.S. government pen here, and I'm you know making notes. Usually, I use pencil. But I also have it pulled up here on another screen, and I can click through on Google Scholar, and I can I can look at that case uh, and check it out myself and see if he's correct in what he's how he's characterizing these cases, these other cases. He wants to be consistent with the precedent of, of other cases because good law proceeds in a predictable fashion because people rely on uh, logical consistency 
to order their affairs and their conduct going forward. It's hard to have uh, what's called in due process terms, fair notice if you can't predict logically whether your conduct fits with the precedent. So the assumption is that there's natural law at work here that the, the, the laws and statutes and the, and the court may, uh, ruling on these individual cases has to be logically consistent with what has come before. And, you know, so that gets into a little bit of a situation where you wonder theoretically, what's the basis of overturning precedent? Okay. Um, I don't want to get to that right now. We're going to go back to Rufus. Page 55, the latest case decided by this court involving the police power is that of Jacobson versus Massachusetts decided at this term and reported in the 197th volume, page 11 of the U.S. reports. That's a um, very recent case. That was, I think, the same year, 1905. And I'm clicking through right now to verify it is 1905, February, February 20th. Folks, if you don't remember the last three episodes we did on McDougal versus County of Ventura with our special guest, Lawrence Van Dyke, Republican judge on this, uh, the Ninth Circuit, nominated by president trump confirmed by republican senate yeah um interacted with that jacobson issue with it was a the vaccine case here's peckham it related to compulsory vaccination and the law was held valid as a proper exercise of the police powers with reference to the public health it was stated in the opinion this is jacobson that it was a case of an adult who, for aught that appears, was himself in perfect health and a fit subject for vaccination, page 56 now, and yet while remaining in the community, refusing to obey the statute and the regulation adopted in the execution of its provision for the protection of public health and public safety, confessedly endangered by the presence of a dangerous disease. That was smallpox, by the way. That case is also far from covering the one now before the court. So what he's doing is he's saying, Peckham is saying, we got this case, we got this case. We got they're similar in some respects, but he's distinguishing him. He's saying they're not consistent. They're not inconsistent with what I'm saying here. That, that's what he's saying. Petit versus Minnesota was upheld as a proper exercise of the police power relating to the observance of Sunday. Yeah. I always do that when I like the case or I like the issue. I might not like the case, but I like the issue. So I might say, yeah. Just FYI. That was 1900. Petit versus Minnesota of 1900 was upheld as a proper exercise of the police power relating to the observance of Sunday. And the case was held that the legislature 
had the right to declare as a matter of law, keeping barbershops open on Sunday was, was not a work of necessity or charity. Gee, I wonder why they wanted to close barbershops on Sunday. Anybody want to have any ideas about this? It's an interesting case to read. I'm not going to read it right now, but I mean, I have it in front of me, but I'm not going to read it to you. Um, but um, it's that old Sabbath tradition from the Bible. What they did was they, they made it a part of the statute statutory law of, of the state. The, the, uh, a version of the Sabbath shows the biblical influence on the United States. Well, he's saying that's perfectly valid as a police power. Just like maybe, you know, defining marriage accurately would be an ac would be a proper function of the police power. Redefining marriage inaccurately would not be a proper function of the police power. This is me. This is not. Peckham. Peckham's not saying this. He didn't have to say it. It wasn't an issue back then. Okay, Peckham, again, page 56. It must, of course, be conceded that there is a limit to the valid exercise of the police power by the state. That is a great quote right there. That should be on a coffee mug. That should be on calendars, T-shirts, it must, of course, be conceded there's a limit to the valid exercise of the police power of the state. All gun control is uh, claimed to be a valid function of the police power of the state, for example. So are there limitations on attempts to do gun control? Some people say no. And some people say, yes, there are limitations. And those people are Republicans. Now, here you have a Democrat saying it. And I want you to pay attention. Because he ruffles some feathers of other Democrats. Other Democrats later, you're going to see, are, are really upset. What are you talking about? We limit the police power of the state. State can do whatever the hell it wants to do. That's what the... The Democrats who disagree with them, that's what they say. There is no dispute concerning this general proposition. <laughs> All right, Peckham. All right. I, I mean, I'm in agreement with you. Otherwise, the 14th Amendment would have no e efficacy, and the legislatures of the state would have unbounded power. <laughs> Does that sound like something? Does that sound familiar? Otherwise, the 14th Amendment would have no efficacy and the legislatures of the state would have unbounded power. And it would be enough to say that any piece of legislation was enacted to conserve the morals, the health, or the safety of the people. Such legislation would be valid no matter how absolutely without foundation the claim might be. The claim of the police power would be a mere pretext become another and delusive name for the supreme sovereignty of the state to be exercised free from constitutional restraint.
This is not contended for. In every case that comes before this court, therefore, where legislation of this character is concerned and where the protection of the federal constitution is sought, the question necessarily arises, is this a fair, reasonable, and appropriate exercise of the police power of the state? Or is it an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of the individual to his personal liberty or to enter into those contracts in relation to labor, which may seem to him appropriate or necessary for the support of himself or his family? That's a question. Of course, the liberty of contract relating to labor includes both parties to it. The one has as much right to purchase as the other to sell labor. Incidentally, I would just, since this is the Republican Professor podcast, all, I always like to remind you the 14th Amendment was a Republican law. It was a spruced up version of the first Civil Rights Act, which was 1866. So when people say the civil rights movement and what they mean by that is like the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 1960s, and they mean like black people, the civil rights movement. I mean, that's not the civil rights movement. It's uh, the, the civil rights movement. I mean, the first civil rights act was 1866, all Republicans. And yes, it did involve black people at the time, but it was all Republicans. When people say the civil rights movement, they, they, they want to, um, they're uncomfortable starting where the civil rights movement started because that would include um, people they want to exclude from that um, badge of honor of the civil rights movement. Uh, they, they want to exclude some so-called white people, white men, uh, and they want to exclude Republicans. They don't want Republicans getting the glory for the civil rights movement. But this is all true. The 14th Amendment. I mean, look at Peckham. Here, look at Peckham. He's talking about this in 1905. And he's a Democrat. He's accepted the Republicans won on the 14th Amendment. That, you know, okay. This is here we go. He's he seems to even believe in it. He seems to say, yeah, this is this is what we got to do. Um, I think the civil rights movement started with like, you know, I mean, if you want to go back to England, you could go back to England, Civil Rights Act, the the, the Bill of Rights. You, you could go back to the Magna Carta. I mean, you could keep going back. You could go back to the Bible, I guess. Um, <laughs> but... Um, 
Just be careful when people say the civil rights movement and they act like it just came out of nowhere. You know, it's, it's, there was no civil rights movement and then boom, there's a civil rights movement all of a sudden in the 1950s. Like, whoa, whoa. Where'd that come from? That, that's not how it happened. Folks like that have a political agenda. So many people don't even know about the agenda anymore because it's thoughtless. It's just it's just you know patterns of of thought and speech that people don't think about anymore. All right, here we go. Page fifty seven is coming up. This is not a question of substituting the judgment of the court for that of the legislature. Page fifty seven. If the act be within the power of the state, it is valid, although the judgment of the court might be totally opposed to the enactment of such a law. But the question would still remain, is it within the police power of the state? And that question must be answered by the court. The question whether this act is valid as a labor law, pure and simple, may be dismissed in a few words. There is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of a of person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. I'm going to point out here what he's doing here. He's he's not writing a dissertation that is perfectly general about labor generally and hours of labor generally. He's cabining his comments to the issue before the court, which is the statute about restricting the number of hours in New York's state for bakers and bakers only. And a wonderful book on this is, is David Bernstein. I think it's David E. Bernstein. I'm going to look it up just so I remember because I don't want him to be, watch this and be upset at me. Hold on a sec. I hope you're having fun. I'm having fun. I'm, I'm still having Christmas candy, so I had to go grab some. The name of the scholars re of um, the name of the scholar I was referencing, David E. Bernstein, wrote Rehabilitating Lochner. The subtitle is Defending Individual Rights Against uh, Progressive Reform. Excellent book. Excellent book. I want to have him on the podcast. I haven't reached out to him. But at some point, we'll get him on. We got to get Rufus Peckham on first. So he, we have Rufus here. Where were we? All right. There is no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or manual occupations, or that they are not able to assert their rights and care for themselves without the protecting arm of the state, interfering with their independence of judgment and of action. 
they are in no sense wards of the state. Viewed in the light of a purely labor law with no reference whatever to the question of health, we think that a law like the one before us involves neither the safety nor the morals nor the welfare of the public and that the interest of the public is not in the slightest degree affected by such an act. The law must be upheld, if at all, as a law pertaining to the health of the individual engaged in the occupation of a baker. It does not affect any other portion of the public than those who are engaged in that occupation. Clean and wholesome bread does not depend upon whether the baker works but 10 hours per day or only 60 hours a week, the limitation of the hours of labor does not come within the police power on that ground. What I was mentioning about uh, David E. Bernstein and his book, Rehabilitating Lochner, is he goes into the, the history and finds out that the motivation for this law was actually to protect big bakeries large bakeries that wanted unions and stuff or uh, and and unions <laughs> and they um wanted to crush the small bakers the family-owned bakers and the family-owned bakeries were owned by immigrants from europe and they would come to america and what do they know how to do they know how to uh, cook their bread they know how to do ethnic kind of stuff like be a baker and um, it, it could be confectory. It could be, you know, like uh, like croissants or something. It, it could be bagels, you know. And uh, a lot of these family bakeries, they would live over the bakery, you know, right there. You know, I don't know if you, uh, I, I always think of this film and it's, it's anachronistic to point this out, but this, the film uh, Moonstruck, which is, I think it's in New York city, supposed to be in New York city. And it's got, um, it's got uh, Nicholas cage and that lady. Uh, she was a singer table. I think her name was. Ta oh, sorry. Chair chair. Yeah. And uh he's in there and he's the baker, right? He's down there and he's like, you know, he's all sweaty and he's, it's a family run business and, and it's really weird hours. And, and I mean, it takes a long time to bake stuff and you, you might be working long hours. And so there's interesting, there's more to the story than just what was in the statute there. I would recommend that book, Rehabilitating Lochner. But anyway, here we go. So it is a question of which of two powers or rights shall prevail. The power of the state to legislate or the right of the individual to liberty of person and freedom of contract. Incidentally, I know I'm, Interrupting a lot, but the whole issue of slavery and the Republicans beating the Democrats on the issue of slavery, which led to the 14th Amendment, 
and the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and the 15th Amendment protecting the right to vote of newly freed slaves. Uh, that was a freedom of contract issue. That, that was all about freedom of contract. That was a, a labor issue. Having freedom to contract for your labor. So, you know, so I, I mentioned this because it's not like it's a separate issue. It it goes back to the heart of slavery, the heart of the Republican Party. The, the Republican Party was founded in 1854 to do battle against the twin barbarisms of polygamy and slavery. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Let's get back to Brother Rufus Peckham. We're getting we're we're enjoying being with you, Rufus. Thank you for being here on the Republican Professor Podcast. So it is a question of which of two powers or rights shall prevail. They're in conflict. Only one will prevail, if at all. The power of the state to legislate or the right of the individual to liberty of person and freedom of contract. The mere assertion that the subject re relates, though but in a remote degree to public health, does not necessarily render the enactment valid. The act must have a more direct relation as a means to an end, and the end itself must be appropriate and legitimate before an act can be held to be valid, which interferes with the general right of an individual to be free in his person and in his power to contract in relation to his own labor. You guys, this is, this is, you can't make this up. Just today, I saw on LinkedIn, and I, you know, I've, I'm going to show you my LinkedIn page. Okay. Just today, I saw on LinkedIn a new rule being proposed. And I, I mean, I, I shared it. I shared a discussion of it. Um, a new rule proposed by the Biden administration. What type of worker are you? Government has a new test for who should be on a payroll. In other words, restrictions on the gig economy, contractors, um, independent contractors, gig workers, um, freelancers. That's happening today. That that's that's right now. It's the same issue. <laughs> Back to Rufus, page 58, Lochner versus New York. This case has caused much diversity of opinion in the state courts. In the Supreme Court, two of the five judges opposing composing the appellate division dissented from the judgment affirming the validity of the act. 
in the court of appeals, <coughs> excuse me, three of the seven judges also dissented from the judgment upholding the statute. Although found in what is called a labor law of the state, the court of appeals has upheld the act as one relating to the public health. And in other words, <clears throat> as a health law, <laughs> one of the judges of the court of appeals in upholding the law stated that in his opinion, the regulation in question could not be sustained unless they were able to say from common knowledge that working in a bakery and a candy factory, I told you it was about confections too, was an unhealthy employment. That's the, you know, that's why he's saying it's different than mining. That's, that's an inherently dangerous thing, but, but baking bread, that's not inherently dangerous. Okay. The judge held that while the evidence was not uniform, it still led to the conclusion that the occupation of a baker or confectioner was unhealthy and tended to result in diseases of respiratory organs. Three of the judges dissented from that view, and they thought the occupation of ben Baker was not to such an extent unhealthy as to warrant the interference of the legislature with the liberty of the individual. We think that the limit, we think the limit of the police power has been reached and passed in this case. There is, in our judgment, no reasonable foundation for holding this to be necessary or appropriate as a health law to safeguard the public health or the health of the individuals who are following the trade of a baker. If this statute be valid and if therefore a proper case is made out in which to deny the right of the individual sui juris as an employer employee to make contracts for labor of the latter under the protection of the provisions of the federal constitution, there would seem to be no length to which the legislature of this nature might not go. The case differs widely, as we have already stated, from the expression of this court in regards to laws of this nature, as stated in Holden versus Hardy and Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Page 59. We think that there can be no fair doubt that the trade of a baker in and of itself is not an unhealthy one to that degree which would authorize the legislature to interfere with the right to labor and with the right of free contract on the part of the individual, either as employer or employee. In looking through statistics, Regarding all trades and occupations, it may be true that the trade of the baker does not appear to be as healthy as some other trades and is also vastly more healthy than still others. To the common understanding, the trade of the baker has never been regarded as an unhealthy one. Very likely, physicians would not recommend the exercise of that or any other trade as a remedy for ill health. Some occupations are more healthy than others, but we think that there are none which might 
not come under the power of the legislature to supervise and control the hours of working therein if the mere fact that the occupation is not absolutely and perfectly healthy is to confer that right upon the legislative department of the government. It might be safely affirmed that almost all occupations more or less affect the health. There must be more than the mere fact of possible existence of some small amount of unhealthiness to warrant legislative interference with liberty. Put that on a coffee mug. That's a coffee mug quote right there. There must be more than the mere fact of the possible existence of some small amount of unhealthiness to warrant legislative interference with liberty. It is unfortunately true that labor, even in any department, may possibly carry with it the seeds of unhealthiness. But are we all, on that account, at the mercy of legislative majorities? Another coffee mug quote. That, that's, that's February's centerfold in Natural Right Magazine. A printer, a tinsmith, a locksmith, a carpenter, a cabinet maker, a dry goods clerk, a banks, a lawyer, a physician's clerk, a clerk in almost any kind of business would all come under the power of the legislature on this assumption. No trade, no occupation, no mode of earning one's living could escape this all-pervading power. And the acts of the legislature in limiting the hours of labor in all employments would be valid, although such limitation might seriously cripple the ability of the laborer to support himself and his family. Incidentally, what this new rule proposed by the Biden administration, which was modeled from what I hear on AB5 from a few years ago, 2019, I believe it was, in California, it's a disaster. It is a disaster. Basically, it bureaucratizes. There's another layer of government which gets in the way of contracting for labor to do any number of things, to make a living, to be able to make a living. You got to jump through more hoops. And even so, even some bureaucrat has got to say, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that for a living. You can't do it that way. You have to be a W-2. And they just think you can, you know, top down based on the probably, you know, yeah, based on what? AB5 was passed by the legislature in California. This is a rule that's not passed by the legislature on the federal level that they're proposing. Anyway, it's a similar issue going on right now. It's unprecedented in American history, besides like with slavery. With slavery... 
there was a regulation of labor that is so radical and so evil. And of course, it was Democrats back then that enjoyed that. It's Democrats now that want to control the labor issue just as much. They're control freaks. All right. Oh. In our large cities, there are many buildings into which the sun penetrates for but a short time in each day. And these buildings are occupied by people carrying on, carrying on the business of bankers, brokers, lawyers, real estate, and many other kinds of business aided by many clerks, messengers, and other employees. Page 60 now. Upon the assumption of the validity of this act under review, it is not possible to say that an act prohibiting lawyers or bank clerks or others from contracting to labor for their employers more than eight hours a day would be invalid. It might be said that it is unhealthy to work more than that number of hours in an apparent lighted apartment lighted by artificial light during the working hours of the day, that the occupation of the a bank clerk, the lawyer's clerk, the real estate clerk, or the broker's clerk in such offices is therefore unhealthy. And the legislature and its paternal wisdom must therefore have a right to legislate on the subject of and to, the, to limit the hours for such labor. And if it exercises that power and its validity be questioned, it is sufficient to say it has reference to the public health. It has reference to the, the health of the employees condemned to labor day after day in buildings where the sun never shines. It is a health law and therefore valid and cannot be questioned by the courts. He's saying you could say that if you were one of these control freak people. It is also urged, pursuing the same line of argument, that it is to the interest of the state that this that its population should be strong and robust and therefore any legislation which may be said to tend to make people healthy must be as valid must be valid as health laws enacted under the police power if this be a valid argument and a justification for this kind of legislation it follows that the protection of the federal constitution from undue interference with liberty of person and freedom of contract is visionary. Wherever the law is sought to be justified as a valid exercise of the police power, scarcely any law, screwed that one up, sorry, scarcely any law but might find shelter under such assumptions and conduct properly so-called as well as contracts would come under the restrictive sway of the legislature. Not only the hours of employees, but the hours of employers could be regulated and doctors and lawyers and scientists and all professional men, as well as athletes and artisans could be forbidden to fatigue their brains and bodies by prolonged hours of exercise, lest the fighting strength of the state be impaired, page 61. We mention these extreme cases, these are hypothetical, 
because the contention is extreme. We don't believe in the soundness of the views which uphold this law. On the contrary, we think that such a law as this, although passed in the assumed exercise of the police power and as relating to the public health or the health of the employees named, is not within that power and is invalid. The act is not within any fair meaning of the term a health law, but is an illegal interference with the rights of the individuals. Dude, that goes on a coffee mug too. That goes on a beer stein. Both employers and employees to make contracts regarding labor upon such terms as they may think best or which they may agree upon with the other parties to such contracts. Statutes of the nature of that under review, limiting the hours in which grown and intelligent men may labor to earn their living are mere meddlesome interferences with the rights of the individual. And they are not saved from condemnation by the claim that they are passed in the exercise of the police power and upon the subject of health of individual whose rights are interfered with, unless there be some fair ground, reasonable in and of itself, to say that there is material danger to the public health or the health of the employees if the hours of labor are not curtailed. If this is not clearly the case, the individuals whose rights are thus made the subject of legislative interference are under the protection of the federal constitution regarding their liberty of contract as well as of person. And the legislature of the state has no power to limit their right as proposed in this statute. All that it could be properly could properly do has been done by it with regard to the conduct of bakeries as provided for in other sections of the act set above set forth. These several sections provide for the inspection of the premises where the bakery is carried on with regard to furnishing proper washrooms, water closets, apart from the bake room, and also in regard to providing proper drainage, plumbing and painting. The sections, in addition to provide for the height of the ceiling, the cementing or tiling of floors where necessary in the opinion of the factory inspector and for other things of that nature, alterations, page 62, are also provided for and are made where necessary in the opinion of the inspector in order to comply for, with the provisions of the statute. These various sections may be wise and valid regulations, and they certainly go to the full extent of providing for the cleanliness and the healthiness, so far as possible, of the quarters in which bakeries are to be conducted. Adding to all these requirements a prohibition to enter into any contract of labor in a bakery for more than a certain number of hours a week is, in our judgment, so wholly beside the matter of a proper 
reasonable and fair provision as to run counter to that liberty of person and of free contract provided for in the federal constitution. It was further urged upon the argument that restricting the hours of labor in the case of bakeries, bank, uh, bank, sorry, bakers was valid because it tended to cleanliness on the part of workers as a man was more apt to be clean when not overworked. And if cleanly, then his output was also more likely to be so. What has already been said applies with equal force to this contention. We do not admit the reasoning to be sufficiently to be sufficient to justify the claimed right of such interference. The state in that case would assume the position of a supervisor or pater familius, pater familius, the father of the family, over every act of the individual and its right of governmental interference with this, with his hours of labor, his hours of exercise, his character thereof, and the extent to which it shall be carried would be recognized and upheld. In our judgment, it is not possible, in fact, to discover the connection between the number of hours a baker may work in a bakery and, and the healthy quality of the bread made by the workman. The connection, if any exists, is too shadowy and thin to build any argument for the interference of the legislature. If the man works 10 hours a day, it is all right. But if 10 and a half or 11, his health is in danger and his bread may be unhealthy, and therefore he shall not be permitted to do it. This, we think, is unreasonable and entirely arbitrary. Kind of reminds you of magazine capacity limitations. If you made that connection, good, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, 10, 10, eh, 11. No, that's unhealthy. That's unsafe. It's very, very much the same. You'll see a theme. When assertions such as we have averted to become necessary in order to give, if possible, a plausible foundation for the contention that the law is a health law, it gives rise to at least a suspicion that there has uh, there was some other motive dominating the legislature than the purpose to sub subserve the public health or welfare. This interference on the part of the legislature of the several states with the ordinary trades and occupations of the people seems to be on the increase. On page 63, in the Supreme Court of New York, in the case of People versus Beattie, Appellate Division, First Department, decided in 1904, a statute regulating the trade of horseshoeing and requiring the person practicing such trade to be examined and obtain a certificate from the Board of Examiners and file in the same with the clerk of the county wherein the person proposed to practice such trade was held invalid 
and arbitrary interference with the personal liberty and private property without due process of law. The attempt was made unsuccessfully to justify it as a health law. Same kind of statute was held invalid in, in Ray Aubrey by the Supreme Court of Washington in December 1904. The court held that the act deprived citizens of their liberty and property without due process of law and denied to them the equal protection of the laws. It also held that the trade of a horseshoer is not a subject of regulation under the police power of the state as a business concerning and directly affecting the health, welfare, or comfort of its inhabitants. And that therefore, a law which provided for the examination and registration of horseshoers in certain cities was unconstitutional as an illegitimate exercise of the police power. The Supreme Court of Illinois and Bassett versus People also held that a law of the same nature providing for the regulation of licensing of horseshoers was unconstitutional as an illegal interference with the liberty of individual in adopting and pursuing such a calling as he may choose subject only to the restraint necessary to secure the common welfare. <clears throat> In these cases, page 64, the courts upheld the right of free contract and the right to purchase and sell labor upon such terms as the parties may agree to. In other words, he's saying, the benefit of the doubt should be on the individual's trying to contract for labor. And the legislature should have the burden of proving not just a, not just making an assertion, but proving that their intrusion on liberty is a valid exercise of police power. In other words, it has it is re actually related not possibly related in somebody's mind, possibly, but actually related to health and welfare. Because otherwise, what you have is just states that are constantly regulating, increasing the state, increasing the bureaucrats, which are paid by tax money, and they just stick their nose into everything and make everything more of a pain in the ass, actually, and more expensive. And... Uh, the real harm is violating people's rights. It is impossible for us to shut our eyes to the fact that many of the flaw, the laws of this character, while passed under what is claimed to be the police power for the purpose of pu uh, protecting public health or welfare, are in reality passed from other motives. Hmm. Fascinating and relevant. We are justified in saying so when from the character of the law and the subject upon which it legislates, it is apparent that the public health or welfare bears but the most remote relation to the law. The purpose of a statute must be determined from the natural and legal effect of the language employed. And whether it is or is not repugnant to the Constitution of the United States must be determined from the natural effect of such statutes when put into operation, not from their proclaimed purpose. 
the court looks beyond the mere letter of the law in such cases. I remember when I was in high school, I was arguing with, uh, there was a Democrat on the, the newspaper with me and we got along. His name was Adam, Adam Foster. And, uh, he, uh, once said to me that, um, Reagan vetoed the clean air act. And I remember thinking to myself, so you read the title of the act and that was the end of the story for you. It must obviously just be just about clean air and that's what it is. And that's the only thing that needs to be thought of is just the mere title of it. You don't even need to read it. And I was pointing out that uh, that's because Reagan read the act and found it was, it was totally repugnant. doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it whatever you want. Call it whatever fancy pants thing you want to call it. But, you know, there are some people that have such, such low attention spans um, that, that, and most people, I think, they, they just, you know, they don't think very deeply. So they're easily manipulated. By the way, this is at the turn of the century, 1905, this Lochner, he's saying this is happening more and more where states are getting involved in, and trying to legislate details that, they never tried to legislate before. They really have no business doing, um, given our our constitution. Um, that's right around the same time, you know. Marxism had been going on in Europe for like decades. Like the theories, the the percolating intelligentsia. You know, there's percolating revolutions in Russia socialist revolutions there's that have already happened in other parts of Europe based on this these um left lefty and so the same thing comes over to America and it tries to adopt itself to the uh the language and the forms of the American experiment and some people can see that for what it is, and others can't. And therein lies the heart of American politics. Then as now. Here we go. Keep going. The purpose of a statute must be determined from the natural and legal effect of the language employed. And whether... It is or is not repugnant to the Constitution must be determined from the natural effect of such statutes when put into operation, not from their proclaimed purpose. The court looks beyond the mere letter of the law in such cases. There he cites Yik Wo versus Hopkins. It is manifest to us that the limitation of the hours of labor as provided for in this section of the statute under the indictment is found, and the plaintiff and heir convicted, he was convicted, has no such direct relation to and no such substantial effect upon the health of the employee as to justify us in regarding the section as really a health law. It seems to us that the real object and purpose 
were simply to regulate the hours of labor between the master and his employees, all being men, sui juris, in private business, not dangerous to any degree to morals or in any real and substantial degree to the health of the employees. Under such circumstances, the freedom of master and employee to contract with each other in relation to their employment and in defining the same cannot be prohibited or interfered with without violating the federal constitution. The judgment of the Court of Appeals of New York, as well as that of the Supreme Court and of the County Court of Oneida County, must be reversed and the case remanded to the county court for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. Thank you for so much for joining us on the Republican Professor Podcast. Let's thank Justice Rufus Peckham, a Democrat, uh, for writing this for his time uh, introducing us to the timeless issue of the police proper role of the police power of the state in relation to individual liberty. We'll see you next time.